From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We have certainly seen the rise lately of global corporations like Amazon, but there's an organization called the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which thinks that the rules need to be changed a little bit to help smaller businesses. And Stacy Mitchell is the co-director of the Institute. You have uh, written a lot about Amazon. You feel they are stifling competition. So give me an example of what you think local communities who want to retake some control can do about that. Yeah, well, I think, you know, part of the the challenge posed by Amazon is that we've really abandoned our antitrust laws. And so part of the solution to, you know, addressing the kind of market power that Amazon has and the ways that it is undermining competition is sort of reinvigorating our tools of antitrust to make sure that we have, you know, an online uh, economy that is open to new competitors and where we have a thriving mix of, of businesses. So I think ultimately some of the solutions to Amazon really are at the federal level. Um, that said, there's a lot that local communities can do to strengthen small and local entrepreneurs. Um, you know, when you think about uh, zoning, economic development policy, uh, there are ways that cities can encourage the kind of built environment that's really good for small businesses, for new businesses uh, starting up. You know, one of the things, for example, that we often talk to cities about is, you know, where are your economic development subsidies going? You know, a lot of cities are providing incentives for Mm -hmm. new development. Um, Studies show that most of those dollars go to the absolute largest firms, that it's often about sort of chasing (laughs) a company from away. We had a big Boeing uh, bill what, years ago that made sure that those uh, composite wings were going to be built here. But that was was actually one of the big debate topics. Hey, the small businesses... Uh, they have some skin in this game too. What about us? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And you know, Amazon is a good example. I mean, they've they've been picking up subsidies uh, and tax advantages for a long time. Their their distribution network, their warehouses, uh, you know, have built have been built with over a billion dollars uh, in local and state uh, economic development subsidies. You know, you look at their competitors. You know, the the, the local. Uh, a hardware store, or the local bookstore, um, you know, generally haven't gotten any of those dollars. So, I mean, a lot of what we see in our analysis is that policy is really tilting the playing field. And our argument is that we, you know, in order to actually have the benefits of competition, the benefits of markets, we need to use policy to structure those markets in ways that don't just advantage the big guys. Of course, we saw in the Boeing case and also in the Amazon case, these corporations could say, either you give us this tax advantage or we leave. Your corner grocery store does not have that kind of leverage. So what are they supposed to do? Yeah, I mean, it's a good example. I mean, Boeing, obviously, as a as a uh, you know maker of aircraft, I mean, that's the kind of business that's always going to be large scale. But in general, you know, I think it's it's one of the things you can look at. You know, Walmart, Amazon, some of these bigger companies, uh, when they have that kind of leverage. You know, it's a reason maybe to think about maybe we shouldn't allow companies to get so large that that's part of the problem is that they start to have so much leverage and so much power that they kind of overwhelm our political process. They start to make the decisions instead of us making the decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, But that said, I think, you know, 
one of the solutions that local governments need to look to is actually banding together. And we've started to see this a little bit uh, crop up in different places. And there are some bills uh, that have come to play in a number of states, you know, particularly since the HQ2 um, sort of sweepstakes. There are a number of, of lawmakers who are calling for interstate compacts, you know, where cities and states would get together and agree with one another, we're not going to be uh, bribed in this way. We're all going to stand on the same side and say no. Wouldn't that be good? And also, I, I understand that North Dakota addressed this by passing a law governing pharmacies. Can you explain that case to us? Yeah, in the, in the 1960s, uh, North Dakota passed a, a pharmacy ownership law, and the law says that you can't operate a pharmacy in the state it, unless uh, it's owned by a pharmacist. And so effectively what that means is that there are no Walgreens and CVS, there are no chains. Uh, there's no pharmacies in the Walmart stores in North Dakota. Um, the state has 177 uh, pharmacies at last count, and virtually all of them, there, there are a couple that were grandfathered in, but virtually all of them are independent, locally owned pharmacies as a result. And has that helped with the price of prescription drugs at all? Yeah, it's really interesting. We ran across this a number of years ago. Um, you know, this this kind of law is unique in the U.S., though there are examples in European countries uh, of something similar. And the, the goal being, you know, we want the decisions made by pharmacy businesses to be made by healthcare providers, you know, to be that have to be the ultimate decision making. Um, but we ran across this example in North Dakota and thought it was a really interesting test case, you know. Uh, independent pharmacies are disappearing across much of the U.S., and there's often this assumption that they just can't compete. Um, that they must be higher priced, yeah. they don't have the volume and the efficiency of the big chains and so on. And so we thought North Dakota made an excellent kind of case study. Let's look look at that market. And what we found in a study that we did in 2014 is that North Dakota has among the lowest prescription drug prices in the country. They have more pharmacies per capita than any other state. And we also took a close look at at comparing North Dakota with South Dakota, because both states are pretty similar in terms of the distribution of their population and, and being largely rural and stuff. Um, and what we found is that there's much greater access to pharmacies in North Dakota that in the in the least populated, the most rural census tracts in North Dakota, you're much more likely to find an independent a pharmacy of any kind in those small communities, whereas in South Dakota, they're much rarer. Uh, and also in North Dakota's cities, um, there's a lot more competition. You have co consumers have a lot of different pharmacies to choose from, whereas in South Dakota, it tends to be uh, just a few of the big name brands. Uh, so it was interesting to discover that, in fact, uh, you know, pharmacies, independent pharmacies in North Dakota are out competing. And I think for us, it then raised another question, which is if independent pharmacies are um, so competitive in North Dakota, why are they disappearing from the rest of the country? Talk about defying conventional wisdom. We assume that the, the economies of scale means that a large company can offer you better prices than a small one. You're saying the reverse is true. Now, does that only hold true for pharmacies or would that hold true for you know, grocery stores, too? Um, it's true in the context of banking. So if you, uh, you know, uh, federal data show that uh, small community banks and credit unions offer much lower fees and they also offer better interest rates on loans than the biggest banks do. They also 
do uh, much more small business lending and do it much more uh, effectively. They have fewer loans that, that go bad. Um, so in effect, they're kind of better lenders than giant banks are. I think part of what's going on here is we're seeing you know small businesses decline across lots of different sectors of the economy. And we have kind of a uh, an ideology, if you will, um, a, a way of looking at the world that makes this assumption that small businesses can't compete. And so then when we see them disappearing, that sort of further reinforces that assumption. We say, oh, that's why they're disappearing. That that uh, that must, in fact, be true. I think what's really going on in a lot of different sectors is that public policy is tilting the playing field. And in particular, a lot of these giant companies are able to use their market power to undermine their smaller competitors, um, not by outcompeting them, but simply by using their financial uh, muscle to elbow them out of the market. And pharmacies is a good example of, of how that's happening. Um, you know, there are these companies called pharmacy benefit management companies, and most consumers would have never heard of them, but they play a really important role in the healthcare system. The abbreviation is PBMs, and there are just two PBMs that control over 75% of the market. What these companies do, they're they're hired by your health insurance, uh, uh, your health insurance, to determine um, your pharmacy benefits. So they decide which drugs go on the list of drugs that can be reimbursed. They set the terms with pharmacies for what rates uh, they're going to pay when those pharmacies dispense a drug uh, on your insurance plan. All of that kind of stuff. The two PBMs that, that dominate the market, one is Express Scripts and the other is CVS Health. Both of these PBMs own their own mail order pharmacies. CVS is also the nation's largest retail pharmacy chain. Um, and as a result, we see these two PBMs systematically cutting reimbursement rates to independent pharmacies below what it actually costs to buy those drugs, uh, sort of forcing them to lose money, and then steering customers into their own pharmacies. I mean, this is really a blatant, um, I think, violation of the principles of competition. And yet, because we've really you know, weakened our antitrust policy, we don't have federal enforcers going after that. And so what North Dakota's law effectively has done is it is it is created a competitive marketplace um, by you know insulating independent pharmacies from the power of CVS uh, to use its position as a PBM to undermine them. Um, so you know just to to sort of explain you know why uh, what it is that we're seeing in this market and why it is that independent pharmacies are really struggling in a lot of states. Well, let me ask you this then. The president has promised to do something about drug prices, hasn't followed through on it yet. But since North Dakota was able to do this all on its own, couldn't other states all on their own decide to do the same thing? You have to put in a, I mean, you have to give the the big boys time to pack up and leave. So maybe you say five years from now, um, get ready because all pharmacies have to be locally owned. And then drug prices would drop. Yes. I mean, any state could follow North Dakota's uh, approach. Uh, I think you're right that there would need to be sort of a, a time period to allow um, the market to shift over. Um, you know, and uh, that's absolutely open. And I, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of European countries have, have done the same thing. And so I think looking at North Dakota is a great idea. It's it's not just, uh, you know, in addition to the benefit of, of lowering prescription prices, 
um, Consumer Reports and a number of other entities have found that independent pharmacies actually provide better health care, that they do more free screenings, they spend more time talking with patients. And so, you know, when we think about how do we get a good healthcare system, you know, that delivers real value to people, there's a really important role for independent pharmacies in that. And I think it's deeply concerning when we see them declining in so many regions of the country. The other thing that we're seeing states do, um, you know, in addition to what North Dakota has done, is that some states are stepping in and passing laws that regulate PBMs. They're requiring them to be more transparent. Uh, They're limiting their ability to use their market position to undermine independent pharmacies. They're saying things like you have to treat all pharmacies equally. You can't, you know, reimburse your own pharmacy chain at a, at a different rate than you do the independents, things like that. So in the last few years, we've seen a growing number of states uh, adopt those kinds of, of policies. So big picture, would you break up Amazon? Because as far as I know, they're not big. I mean, they're big, but not big enough to be considered a monopoly. You know, the issue with Amazon is in some ways less about its scale, though that's a factor. So online, Amazon captures about one out of every $2 that Americans spend online. The issue with Amazon is that it's it's not just a big retailer. More importantly, it is the infrastructure for uh, modern commerce, uh, online commerce. You know, increasingly, uh, most Americans, when they want to buy something online, they're no longer going to a search engine and typing in what they want. They're going straight to Amazon. Amazon is now a marketplace through which lots of other businesses, you know, just about any um, uh, independent retailer, retail chain, manufacturer, lots of other companies. If you want to reach consumers online now, if you want to sell something online, increasingly you have to ride Amazon's rails. You have to be on its platform. Otherwise, you're missing more than half of shoppers right out of the gate. And so what it means is that Amazon isn't so much of a retailer as it is a kind of railroad. And increasingly, it has the power to block market access for its competitors. It can demote them in the search results. It can introduce its own brand of that product um, and and give itself top billing. Uh, So there's lots of ways in which uh, we see in the reporting and in the research that Amazon uses its... um, position as a gatekeeper for all of these other sellers to undermine them as a competitor, uh, as competitors, and to advantage its own products and services, and also to extract very lucrative fees for them. And they really have no other place to go because there's no viable um, alternative platform out there because Amazon is so dominant. So that's the core issue. Um, Our position is that those things should be separated, that you can either run the railroad, as it were, you can run the, the platform, or you can be a competitor on the platform, but you can't be both. And this is, in in fact, exactly the same decision that the U.S. has come to repeatedly in its history. So when railroads came along back in the day, there were a few big industrialists um, uh, who gained control of those rails and then, you know, disadvantaged their rivals. Uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil, for example, prevented other oil companies from being able to move their product to market by not not letting them on the rails that he had influence over. And so Congress came along and said, look, if you own a railroad, you can't be competing in these other sectors. And I think Amazon, we need to look at that same kind of approach. It's like back in the day when Boeing built the airplanes and ran the airline until they were broken up too. And of course, uh, AT&T. So you think even though Amazon is not, strictly speaking, a monopoly, uh, 
it needs to the parts of the business need to be separated. That's right. That's right. And I think what we have to remember is that, you know, uh, you know, Amazon is just this incredibly innovative company. And this whole rise of e-commerce has just, you know, it's generated all sorts of great benefits uh, in terms of, of convenience, the opportunity for businesses to do business in a new way. Um, but we have to make sure that as we move forward, there's still opportunity for people to come along and invent new things and, and, and succeed. And the trouble is if you have uh, one company that has too much power, it has a tendency to want to hang on to that power uh, in ways that make it harder for others to come along and, and have those great ideas and invent those new things. And so we have to remember that this is, in my view, um, really about how we keep that, um, you know, that, 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 uh, a sequence of innovation moving forward into the future and sort of not allowing it to stagnate at this point, because we do have this dominant company. Stacy Mitchell is the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Stacy, thank you very much. Thank you. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.